and verse number 8. I'll apologize again this morning for last Sunday. To say that my voice was horrible was probably an understatement. I was told afterward that I sounded like Yoda on Star Wars. It was so bad that I didn't even try on Sunday night, but uh, James was kind enough to fill in for me and did a great job. Colossians chapter number 2 and verse number 8. Every generation of Christians faces fresh assaults on their faith. Paul writes to warn the Colossians of the danger of false teachers and the need to guard their hearts. Never has that message, the message of the Apostle Paul, had any more urgency than it does in our own day. There has been no time in history, perhaps, especially history of our country, when there has been a more diverse, quasi-religious teaching going on. A mixture of religious ideas that has become more and more pronounced as ideas are taken from all over the world and mixed together with man's own ideas. Those who hold a biblical worldview, that is a view of the world derived from the Bible, must be on guard. There is a philosophy and style in our world today called the New Age Movement which is a melting pot of mystical and quasi-scientific and religious and even occult elements into a hodgepodge philosophical and religious entity. This philosophy is accepted in our society. It is taught in our colleges and universities, and it is propagated every day on our televisions. Therefore, we must beware. Colossians chapter 2, in verse number 8, the Apostle Paul has this warning. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him, who is the head of all principality and power. In Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the workings of God, who raised Him from the dead." And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against you, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, You made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. As I said, it 
begins with the Apostle Paul in verse 8, warning the Colossians of the need to resist false teachers. He says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Three things I want you to see about false teachers and false teaching this morning. First of all, I want us to see the danger of false teachers. Paul, of course, begins with the word beware, or be on your guard. The danger is great, he says, and therefore there is a need to remain spiritually alert. There are dangers to the faith, and we have to keep our eyes and our ears open to what's happening around us. He warns that what you hear may sound on the surface great. Paul says, however, they are nothing more than empty deceit. Some philosophical systems are like chocolate Easter bunnies. There's a thin shell of candy on the outside, but hollow and empty on the inside. When Paul says, lest anyone cheat you, he is using a military term. It literally means, don't let anyone kidnap you. Don't let anyone take you captive. He wants them to understand that someone is trying to steal their allegiance to Christ. Let me give you three characteristics that we might look at. First of all, it will be subtle. False teaching is not usually a blatant denial of accepted belief. It's usually an exaggeration or something lifted out of context. False teachers are not going to stand up and shout, this this is a false teaching which will contradict the Bible. Instead, they will take a portion of the Bible and they will misuse it. They will misrepresent it. They will use it out of context. Secondly, it will be attractive. No one's going to follow something that they find disgusting. So false teachers will package their teachings in very attractive terms. They will emphasize man's potential to achieve. They will focus on material and personal benefits. They often promise to give us something more than just a simple faith in Jesus Christ can give us. Gnosticism, which is a heresy that may have been the focus of Paul's concern, emphasized a deeper experience. They promoted a secret truth. But if you read just a little bit further, you'll notice how Paul responds to that by saying, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ. We don't need anything else. God has given us everything in our Savior. The third characteristic is that there will also be be some Bible quoting involved. The deceptions that are the most dangerous today are those that take parts of the Bible to reinforce their beliefs. This makes them sound biblical. But beware of those who quote a series of verses. We need to look those verses up. You need to check to see if those verses are being used in 
context. See if they really say what these individuals are claiming they say. The truth is that you can use the Bible to prove anything if you don't mind and don't care about context. If you don't care what the Bible's talking about, you can pull a a verse. You can pull three words out of the Bible to prove your point. Perhaps an example we see on TV, uh, one of the movements of our day, they have a television commercial of a man talking in soft tones about the guide of his life, the Bible. He tells how he learned about Jesus in the Bible and how Jesus told his disciples about other sheep. This nice man goes on to tell us that those other sheep were Mormons. And then he tells us how we can get a copy of the Book of Mormon for ourselves. The other testament. Now this is a blatant attempt to deceive believers into thinking that Mormonism is really just a more developed form of Christianity. The goal is not to get you to read your Bible. The goal is to get you to read the Book of Mormon. It's an attempt to draw people away from true Christianity. Another kind of thing that happens, happens from what we consider Christian sources. You can listen to some well-known television evangelist preach a rather distorted version of the gospel. You'll hear them say something about the key to Christian victory is to speak the truth. That God will not bless you unless we confess the blessing we desire. They use as a proof text, Numbers chapter 14 and verse 28. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. And then they will ask the audience to repeat the phrase, I will do to you the very things I heard you say over and over and over to prove the principle that's being proclaimed. But if you read the passage in context, you realize that that is not what the Bible verse is about at all. The passage relates how the Israelites had refused to obey God. They had refused to trust in God and enter into the promised land. They were afraid to trust God. They were afraid that they would be killed. And God becomes angry and He considers destroying the entire nation. But Moses intercedes for the people. And then God says... As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very things that I heard you say. In this desert, your bodies will fall, every one of you, 20 years old or more. He was not giving a principle of prosperity. He was giving an announcement of a judgment. Paul is, however, not demeaning philosophy overall. The word philosophy just means the love of wisdom. What Paul does warn us against is an empty and deceptive philosophy. He's warning that not every idea is a good idea. 
He's not against learning. He was probably the most learned man of his day. He would have had the equivalent of a PhD in our day. Very learned man. He's not against learning. He's not against intellectual growth. He was warning against the subtle mixing of Christian thought with false philosophy and coming up with your own religion. Any effort to blend the Christian message with whatever philosophy is in vogue in the day is what Paul is warning against. Now notice, secondly, the distinctives of false teaching. Paul uses a, cramp, a common Greek preposition. The word is kata, but that doesn't really mean anything to you. What I want you to note is that it occurs three times in verse 8, and each time it gives us a characteristic. It's in your Bible, in the words translated, according to. So I want you to underline those as they occur in the text. First of all, he says, according to the tradition of men. The point is clear. A false teaching will always present itself as some kind of new discovery of an ancient truth. This has been here all along, but it's been hidden and we've just discovered it. It's according to the tradition of man. He says it's really nothing other than something that comes from the mind of a man. Secondly, according to the basic principles of the world. When Paul refers to the basic principles of the world, the word that is translated basic principles is a word that literally means in a row, such as alphabet, A, B, C, D, in a row. That's what it means. But it can be translated elemental spirits of the world. And it is translated that way in several translations, the RSV and the NEB, both translated in that way. If that is the case, then it seems likely that what he is referring to is the gods of the stars. The ancients thought that gods of the stars, usually angelic spirits or, or minor deities, controlled these heavenly bodies, and they in turn control the world. You say, well, that didn't have much effect on us today. Well, let me enlighten you. A poll conducted near the turn of the 21st century reported that 48% of Americans, 48% of Americans believe that astrology is probably or definitely valid. Almost half of the population of America believes that astrology is probable or definitely valid. The fact that we have now landed probes on the planet really doesn't seem to have affected that at all. That they still believe that these planets somehow control our lives. Many ordinary people believe that the movement of the stars and the planets govern our lives. In our day, people look to the signs of the stars as some way to prepare themselves for the future. However, most people in Paul's day viewed the stars as a more malevolent force, a more evil force in the world, controlled by spiritual beings who could terrorize them as well as 
bless them. Now, people are still buying into that thought when they consult astrology charts, when they go to palm readers, chandlers, psychics, try to communicate with ancient spirits. And just on a personal note, have you ever noticed that the the buildings that the psychics have their headquarters in? They're not mansions. Little run-down buildings by the side of the road? That didn't impress me. I mean, if you're a psychic and you're, you know what's coming in the future and you're going to help me and you're living in a little shack down by the side of the road, ah, you're not helping me much. There's a third thing he says, and this is the negative side. He says, not according. Not according to Christ. How does one detect if some philosophy is not according to Christ? Well, its bogus character is usually revealed whenever it proceeds along these lines. Faith in Christ is fine as far as it goes. But you are not really right with God. You're not really accepted by God. You're not really protected by God unless you also... And you add whatever you want to. It makes no difference how the sentence is completed. It's false, and it's not according to Christ. Third and last thing today is the defense against false teaching. Paul tells his readers that the best defense against false teachers is to realize the fullness or the completeness of what they already possess in Christ. He is, in fact, repeating what he has said earlier in chapter 1 about the completeness of Christ. He says, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He says, literally, that the fullness of God dwells in him permanently. And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Three things that are complete for us. First of all, your salvation is complete. In him you were also circumcised with the uncircumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sin of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, the reason that Paul brings up the whole issue of circumcision here is because the false teachers are proclaiming that circumcision is necessary for those Gentiles who are coming into the church. If you're going to be saved, you must be circumcised, just like the Jews are. We understand that every Jewish boy was circumcised on the eighth day after his birth as a sign of the covenant between God and the nation of Israel. But the circumcision that Christ describes here is intended to be a graphic picture of Christ's death on the cross. The circumcision that Christ underwent was the crucifixion when his physical body was violently stripped off in death. The real issue here is not circumcision, but the grounds of salvation. 
Now, we don't have people today telling us that you must be circumcised in order to be saved. But we have lots of people who would give us a long list of things that we must do or we must become before we can be saved. But Paul says that Christ has already done everything necessary for our salvation by His death on the cross. Paul says not only is your salvation complete, your forgiveness is complete. Verse 13, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against you, which was contrary to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. One of my favorite verses is verse number 14. He says, Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. He's describing a practice in that day that once a man was found guilty of a crime and confined to prison, the list of his crimes would be written onto a piece of paper and the sentence for that crime would be also written on that paper and nailed to the door of his cell. When the last day of his sentence was completed, the paper was removed and a single word would be written across the face of the print to telestai. It is finished. It is the same word that Jesus uttered on the cross. It is finished. It is completed. It is paid for. Christ took the record of our sins. He took them to the cross. He paid the penalty for our sin. That He might declare that it is finished. Our debt is paid. Martin Luther experienced the reality of that truth in a dream. In this dream, he was visited by Satan, who brought him a written record of his own life, written in Luther's own hand. Satan presented the list and said, Is that true? Did you write it? And poor Luther had to confess that it was all true. And scroll after scroll was unrolled, and each the same confession was wrung from him again and again and again. At length, the evil one prepared to take his departure, having brought Luther to the lowest depths of abject misery. But suddenly Luther turned to Satan and he said, It is true, every word of it, but right across it all, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses all sin. Not only is your forgiveness complete, but finally your victory is complete. 
Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Paul gives us a behind-the-scenes look at what is happening at Jesus' crucifixion. This was not visible to any of the spectators. It's Paul's purpose in verse 15 to show how complete and how final was Jesus' victory on the cross in winning perfect freedom over condemnation and the power of sin for all those who would trust in Christ. You know, we tend to think of the death of Jesus on the cross as a defeat and His resurrection as a victory. But in fact, His death on the cross was His victory over sin. And His resurrection was God's vindication over a victory that was already won. Jesus did not look very victorious on the cross. Just as a winner of a marathon may not look like a winner at the finish line. But it's the award ceremony where the winner becomes evident. This we see in the words triumphing over. That means to lead as prisoners of war in a victorious war procession. The picture is of a military procession leading captives of war. A victorious Roman general would lead his captives through the streets of Rome in a massive parade. Behind him, the conquered kings and officers and soldiers of the defeated nation would follow. This was one of the highest honors that a Roman general could achieve. You see, Christ not only offers us forgiveness and a clear slate with God concerning our sins, but He also delivers us from every power that would ever try to claim title to our lives. In the death and burial and resurrection of Christ, God the Father has achieved a great victory over Satan and over all the evil powers of this world, making a public spectacle of them. There is no fear as to the outcome of the war. Christ has already won the war. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah gives this invitation in Isaiah 55, verses 1 and 2. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come and buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money that for that which is not bread and your wages for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully me and eat what is good and let your soul delight also in abundance. In the New Testament, the Apostle John repeats that invitation in the book of Revelation. He says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts, Come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. If you're still under the weight of your sin this morning, all you need to do is call out to the Lord Jesus Christ. Be born again. Receive life. Be delivered. And join the victory parade. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for our forgiveness. That it is complete.
There's nothing that remains to be done. You've already taken care of the penalty of our sin. And Father, if there's one here that has never come under that cleansing power, I pray that this morning they might realize that they are sinners, that they cannot save themselves, but that Jesus has already done everything necessary to save them. All they have to do is receive the free gift that He offers. Receive what He has done on the cross of Calvary by admitting that they're sinners and asking for forgiveness. For those of us who are saved, we ask, Lord, that You'd help us to live in the power of that. Sometimes we forget that the victory is already won and we, we live as if defeated. And we're not defeated. We're victorious. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to live in the the victory that you have provided for us. Lord, whatever it is that you want to do in our hearts and lives this morning, we want to turn this time over to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me, Brother Stephen?